Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the growing likelihood that a war will break out between Russia and Ukraine as Russian state media intensifies its propaganda campaign, raising the specter of an impending Western attack on Russia's vital interests, while President Putin digs the hole deeper in terms of his hawkish rhetoric to the point it may be difficult for him to retreat. Joining us is Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of The American Prospect and the Ida and Maya Kirstein Chair at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary Eye of Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week. His books include Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism and The Stakes, 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy, and he joins us to discuss his article at The American Prospect, The Narrow Path to Averting War Over Ukraine. Then we'll examine the geopolitical upheavals ahead as climate change will create so much environmental destruction in our future, which will be so profound that anything short of the emergence of a new form of global governance to protect the planet and the human rights of all of its inhabitants will be needed by mid-century before we all face unimaginable disasters. Joining us is Alfred McCoy, who holds the Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison the author of Policing America's Empire, the United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State, and In the Shadows of the American Century, the Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. His latest book, Just Out, is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And we will discuss his article at Tom Dispatch, Catastrophic Global Disorder Beckons Unless We Act Swiftly on Climate. And before we go to our first guest... In order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and the Ida and Maya Kirstein Chair at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week. And his books include Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism and The Stakes, 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy. And he has an article at the American Prospect, The Narrow Path to Averting War Over Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And one of the problems that we have in U.S. relations with both the Soviet Union and now the successor state of Russia has always been the inability to understand the perceptions that the other side has. And it became particularly acute in 1983, in November of 1983, when the geriatrics in the Kremlin who were on kidney dialysis, became convinced that Reagan, because of his rhetoric, was determined, as Reagan said, to have the Soviet Union end up on the ash heap of history. Now, they took that literally, along with Cap Weinberger talking about nuclear decapitation, which they took personally. And we almost had a nuclear war based upon the perceptions that they thought that a NATO exercise uh, was a springboard for a real attack. And it was only because the, there was a KGB double agent working out of the London residency of the KGB in the embassy there that they were able to stop this exercise and calm things down. And that behind the scenes was one of the reasons why Reagan, who was a hawk, 
suddenly overnight appear to become a dove. So that's just a sort of little bit of history to indicate that we already had a recent nuclear alert, not here in the United States, but in Russia itself, where in the last time Putin massed troops on the, on the border with Ukraine, he also put Soviet nuclear forces on full alert. So in effect, I guess both sides are playing with fire here, but they don't seem to have the same diplomatic urgency that it's, is required to put out these fires. Well, let me give you another piece of history. Um, you know, when, uh, <clears throat> when Gorbachev became uh, uh, premier of what was then the Soviet Union still uh, and uh, decided that uh, the time had come for a real detente, uh, James Baker, who was then Secretary of State, in return for uh, Gorbachev going along with the reunification of Germany, um, pledged that NATO would not be expanded one inch, that there would be no NATO forces in, uh, in East Germany. And of course, within a few years, uh, NATO had expanded to include uh, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland, and then the Baltics. And then when uh, George Bush became president, he also uh, promised that, that NATO membership would be offered to uh, Georgia and Ukraine. Um, also, during that era, and this is another gift to posterity of one Larry Summers. Summers was uh, uh, Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs, which meant that he was our liaison with the International Monetary Fund. And um, he used his influence with the IMF and the U.S., basically called the shots with the IMF to make sure that the Russians would get no money unless they rapidly privatized everything. Summers had no knowledge of Russia, but he knew that everything uh, that was a market worked better. And so rather than giving uh, post-Soviet Russia time to adjust its economy, he pushed it to what turned out to be uh, uh, kleptocratic privatization and pushed Russia into two deep depressions which then paves the way for Putin. So on both counts, uh, the hands of the United States are not clean. Pause, paragraph. However, that does not make Vladimir Putin a good guy. And um, my analogy is the Versailles Treaty that ended uh, World War I, which imposed draconian, stupid terms on defeated Germany, uh, a critique of which made John Maynard Keynes a celebrity, but the travesty of Versailles does not excuse Hitler. So we are in a really ticklish situation. On the one hand, um, what the Russians refer to as their near abroad um, includes what are now independent nations that used to be part of the Tsarist Empire, Ukraine and Belarus. And uh, Putin is gambling that he cares a lot more about Ukraine than um, Biden does. He's already got a puppet installed in, uh, in Belarus. Um, so on the one hand, the United States um, cares about the fact that the good people of Ukraine have managed to install a democratic government that embarrasses Putin, who's a dictator. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, we don't want Putin to just get away with invading Ukraine, as he partly did in 2013-2014. Uh, I do think it's possible for both sides to stand down. Uh, I wrote in the article in the Prospect that uh, Angela Merkel, who speaks fluent Russian, uh, has recently become unemployed. Maybe uh, we should ha have Merkel be a special envoy. Uh, I think the Cuban Missile Crisis and the stand-down after the Cuban Missile Crisis is a rough template. I mean, if you recall, what happened there was the Soviets were trying to install offensive missiles in Cuba. Uh, Kennedy decided to gamble the future of the universe on uh, a blockade, and they cut a deal that uh, Kennedy did not acknowledge publicly, but the deal that allowed Khrushchev to turn around the, the ships carrying the missiles was that the United States in turn would remove offensive missiles from Turkey. So maybe, and I'm speculating here, this is not really my expertise. I'm speculating you could have a deal where the West stands down and says, 
never will Ukraine be admitted to NATO. And in return, uh, Putin doesn't invade. Uh, and this could be brokered by the Europeans, who uh, this is their neighborhood. They really don't want a shooting war with uh, with Russia. The problem is that even if Putin is guaranteed the territorial integrity uh, of, of Ukraine in the sense that we won't arm them and we won't add them to NATO, Ukraine is still a, a, an acute embarrassment. Because even if you see it from the Russian point of view, Putin is a horrible dictator. He's said to be the world's richest man. Uh, he's worth a few hundred um, billion dollars. And uh, he's not a nice person. And this is this is not a democracy. And uh, you, you really don't want that kind of a government to be in Ukraine, much, much less as a, as a pawn of Putin. So this is very, very tricky. And the question is whether both sides are willing to stand down. I certainly think Biden wants to stand down uh, in an election year. On the one hand, he doesn't want to shoot war. On the other hand, he doesn't want to look like a wimp. It's in his interest to have a compromise. I think my intuition is that this will be cat and mouse for the next 10 or 20 years, very much like the Cold War was. It's in the interest of both sides, certainly to avoid a nuclear war. And Russia will make opportunistic incursions to the extent that Russia can get away with it. And um, it, it's in Biden's interest to kick the can down the road, just not to have this blow up between now and next November. And again, I'm speaking with Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and the Ida and Meyer Kirsten Chair at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone and a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week and his books include Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism and The Stakes, 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy. And he has an article in the American Prospect, The Narrow Path to Avoiding, Averting War Over Ukraine. But what worries me, though, in terms of rhetorical traps, when I mentioned earlier Reagan terrifying the old crocs in the Kremlin by talking about the Soviet Union ending up in the, rash, the ash heap of history. I think to some extent Putin is trapping himself in this rhetoric. It's obviously popular at home. There's a sort of sense of wounded pride in Russia, which he exploits. Yep. He's clearly stealing the country blind and needs to distract the people from the fact that, particularly the young people, that their future is being stolen by Putin and his clique. So that's what troubles me is that it could just get out of hand because you know he's out there on a limb and um i don't know if there's a way to walk him back well i don't want to be sanguine about this one thing that the united states and the soviets and then the post-soviet russians got reasonably good at was avoiding nuclear war so um you know, I think this is going to be a cat and mouse game, and uh, I think the Europeans are going to play a, a, a more major role than usual. And I think there will be some accommodation that will allow both sides to claim a measure of, of, of victory. Maybe, maybe I'm being uh, overly optimistic here, but uh, I, I think Putin knows that he's put the West in a kind of a corner where if he actually invades, uh, both uh, the the EU and uh, the Biden administration have said they're going to do something very serious. And I think they mean it. And there are things uh, short of military incursion that uh, they could do. For instance, both Biden and the Europeans have threatened to uh, to cut off access of all Russian banks to the to the international banking system through the so-called SWIFT system, which the West controls. And um, and then you have the whole business with the uh, the gas pipeline, uh, where the new German coalition includes the Greens, who don't want the pipeline at all. And so threatening to shut down the pipeline serves their interest in terms of climate change, as well as the West's interest in terms of a credible threat to Russia. So I think there is probably just enough leverage to give Putin an incentive to want to work out a kind of a mutual stand-down. 
Well, clearly it would have been a better arrangement, uh, the one that you talked about earlier, where Baker made those assurances to Gorbachev that NATO wouldn't expand eastward, and you'd have a kind of neutral, non-military zone in the middle of Europe. But on the other hand, it was Poland and Czechoslovakia and, and the Baltic states that wanted to join NATO. It wasn't as if NATO was being foisted upon them. They don't trust Russia. And frankly, yeah, but there was, but there there was a an intermediate deal in those years um, for a kind of a common European security system that Russia would be part of, that would guarantee the territorial integrity of Russia and would guarantee the territorial integrity of of Eastern Europe and the Baltics. And there was a big fight between the Doves and the Hawks in in the Bush administration and the. You know, the Hawks said, let's just pulverize them while they're weak and extend NATO right up to their borders and encourage parts of Tsarist Russia to form their own, um, you know, republics like like Ukraine, like Georgia, like Belarus and some of the Asian Kazakhstan, so forth, Uzbekistan. And then the Dove said, Jesus, we really maybe we ought to get along with these people. Maybe this could actually be a democracy. Maybe this could be a kind of a nice quasi-capitalist, social democratic democracy, and let's not beat the stuffings out of them. And unfortunately, uh, an unholy alliance of the military hawks and the ultra-free marketeers led by Summers won that debate. So you can't rerun history. You You don't know what would have happened if we had adopted a different posture, whether there, there would have been a backlash against the Democrats, uh, lowercase d, and Putin never would have come to power. Uh, the, the, the problem was Yeltsin was a complete drunk, and there was no logical successor to Yeltsin by, by, by 1999. But if you roll back the tape and you have a more benign relationship b- between the West and Russia, maybe it, it, it might have turned out differently. Well, indeed, the security architecture that you're talking about that the Hawks overrode is the very security architecture that now Putin is calling for. And, That's right. And I'm but, but afraid you, that we're, we're not taking him seriously uh, because we're basically saying it's a non-starter. Well, but there's been, you know, I come back to my Versailles analogy. So much has happened in the past 30 years that you just can't undo. Um, you know, the, the mistake we made was not to put that kind of mutually acceptable architecture in place you know, 1992, 1993, when they were talking about it. But, um, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it's like Hitler saying, hey, boy, we really got screwed at Versailles, and how about letting us rearm? I mean, you, you, you just can't undo that history. Right, but isn't there a fundamental problem, though, and that is that for those countries that used to be a part of the Soviet Union, particularly Poland and Czechoslovakia and uh, the Baltic states. What does Putin offer? He offers gangster government. I mean, like, like the thug in Belarus. So yep. you can't blame the, the Ukrainian people to want, for wanting to have democracy and the rule of law. They've had nothing but kleptocracy, which is what Putin wants. He wants to bring back those crooks. Yeah, exactly. And so the question is, uh, does the West have enough leverage to keep Putin from just... Uh, taking over Ukraine uh, without bringing them into NATO and without getting into a shooting war. And this is very, very ticklish stuff. I, 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 I'm long term, I'm more worried about China uh, because I think China at some point uh, really will invade Taiwan. And that's going to be much, much nastier because the United States can't stand for that. I mean, Taiwan is a much more explicit protectorate of, of the United States than, than Ukraine is of the West. So we, we've got a bunch of nasty stuff to look forward to. But I, my intuition is we're going we're gonna to dodge this bullet, that we're going to come up with some kind of mutual accommodation, and maybe we're not going to have a nuclear war. Now, I'm an optimist, so <laughs> maybe we are going to have a nuclear war. <laughs> well, just in the last minute here, just to, to prick that bubble, uh, Robert, the worst-case scenario would be for Putin to move against Ukraine and then for the communist Chinese government to use that as a cover to invade yep. Taiwan. That's right. And also, it's very much like the, uh, the occupation of uh, Crimea. You, you create a 
fait accompli, uh, you create a new reality, then what does the other side do? And in the case of uh, Crimea, uh, they did nothing. Now, granted, Crimea, slightly different case. It was part of Russia proper, even to a greater extent than Ukraine was. But um, Putin is good at this. This is very, very high stakes poker. He's very good at it. And uh, it's also, by the way, an opportunity for Biden to reestablish a kind of united posture with Europe, which after Trump, Biden really needs to do. So this kills two birds with one stone, having a having a common posture vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine. Well, Robert Cutner, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Well, thank you. And again, I'd be speaking. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and the Ida and Meyer Kirsten Chair at Brandeis University, who's formerly assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week. And his books include Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism and The Stakes, 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy. And he has an article at the American Prospect, The Narrow Path to Averting War Over Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the geopolitical upheavals ahead as climate change will create so much environmental destruction by mid-century that we will all face unimaginable disasters. I don't want to set the world on fire I just want to start a flame in your heart In my Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alfred McCoy, who holds the Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the author of Policing America's Empire, the United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State, and In the Shadow of American Century, the Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. And his latest book just out is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And he also has an article at Tom Dispatch, Catastrophic Global Disorder Beckons Unless We Act Swiftly on Climate. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alfred. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there are so many indications catastrophic climate change is happening, and it's happening at an increasing race, almost exponentially increasing, with these feedback loops, particularly with methane. And, of course, as the polar ice cap melts, the oceans rise, and light that normally is reflected back into outer space from the white snow caps is then absorbed by the dark ocean, and thus climate change worsens. But there's just one example now in Antarctica of a glacier that's about to break loose and form hundreds of icebergs that one glacier in Antarctica could cause sea level rise of up to two feet. I mean, this is extraordinary. I feel like we're all sort of sleepwalking when all of this evidence is piling up in our face. Yeah, the the evidence for the damage of the poles, which are sort of far from our vision and far from our consciousness, is really quite striking. The United Nations and its uh, Paris Agreement uh, back in 2015 said that we we could contain most of the damage if we reached uh, just global warming at 1.5 degrees uh, centigrade. And they said that at 2 degrees centigrade, it would be really disastrous for the world, and that should be avoided at all cost. Well, um, when you speak about these temperatures for the whole planet, what you have to realize is that uh, it's not evenly distributed. The 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 columns of air moving from the hot tropics come down on the poles, and so, therefore, the, the Arctic and Antarctica, and particularly the Arctic, is already at 2 degrees centigrade right now. So they're already at this disaster level. And uh, their, their, their global warming is basically twice that of, uh, of, of the rest of, of the world. Uh, and that is having profound effects uh, upon, first of all, the polar ice caps. You just described the, the massive uh, melting of the, the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. And, uh, of course, the same process is going on 
uh, within 20 years, there will be no more summer sea ice in the Arctic, which will remove a kind of white shield that uh, bounces back much of the, the power of the sun at the pole. Moreover, the vast permafrost, which covers about a quarter of the entire northern hemisphere, which is this vast store of, of carbon dioxide and methane from ice ages past, that, that's melting uh, erratically and dangerously and uh, releasing all kinds of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So the, the trajectory for the 21st century is, is pretty gloomy. Now, what I tried to do in the book was go beyond the climate science and, and use the climate science uh, to make predictions about the changing nature of global power. You know, climate science is actually, among the social sciences and pure sciences, is really unique. Let's say political scientists will predict maybe the next election. Economists will go out as far as the next recession. But what environmental scientists do is they project um, the likely increase in, in, in global warming for the rest of the century. They go out nearly 100 years, uh, and they make you know, a range of predictions you know, for maximum uh, disaster to minimum disaster. Um, and, of course, it's looking like it's the maximum that's likely to happen. So what I did in my book, To Govern the Globe, was to simply take that environmental science, and they're very clear, mathematically sophisticated, scientific projections, and I tried to lay on top of that the future direction of global power, the, the political impact of climate change. And what I found was two things. Uh, first of all, Washington's world order, which has governed the globe for the past 70 years, is likely to, to collapse sometime around 2030. And Washington's world order included international organizations such as the United Nations, the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization, and hundreds of international organizations, governed, if you will, or organized by a rule of law. But within them, perhaps more importantly of all, was a spirit of international cooperation, a culture of cooperation, if you will. And as climate change is accelerating, that, that, that culture of cooperation is beginning to break down. If we think just about the recent past from 2016 to 2018, the arrival of Mideastern refugees uh, in, in Greece, uh, African refugees crossing the Mediterranean to, to Italy and Southern Europe, and then Central Americans and some Mexican refugees, many of them, all these climate change refugees, reaching the U.S. border. This produced a, a surge of hyper-nationalist reaction. Britain's Brexit leaving the European Union, the rise of ultranationalist parties in, in Europe, and then, of course, the election of Donald Trump under the campaign slogan, Build the Wall, to keep out the Central American migrants. And when you add up the Middle Easterners, the Africans, and the Central Americans, that's only 2 million people. Well, by 2050, and it, it's, it builds every year to 2050, the World Bank is, is projecting at least 200 million climate change refugees. And the latest estimate is as many as 1.2 billion climate change refugees. That's people that are not migrating by choice, but as climate change pounds the, the seashores and, and floods the floodplains and turns the desert fringe into desert, people are set in motion. They have to move in order to survive. And so what is going to happen, I think, is, and it's already happening, uh, is the international cooperation, which is the the, if in many ways, the, the central ethos of the Washington world order is going to collapse. And China is not only challenging U.S. global power, economic and military, but China is also creating or offering an alternative international order that sets aside the human rights that have been synonymous with Washington's world order, sets aside the rule of law, and basically has a kind of transactional national self-interest ethos of international exchange. In other words, the end of cooperation. So there's lots of reasons, and we can talk about all those reasons, why, why China is likely to supplant the United States by the end of this decade as the great global hegemon, and further, why, why, uh, why the Chinese global system will likely replace Washington's world order. But then the next question is, okay, so what happens to China's world order? How long will it last? Will it last 70 years like the American or 100 years like the British or 300 years like the Iberian world order? 
No, it looks like the Chinese world order is going to last maybe 20 or 30 years because uh, China is literally digging its own environmental grave by continuing to rely on fossil fuels for its domestic electricity and by promoting the construction of, of coal-fired electrical plants, dozens of them as a part of its Belt and Road Initiative. So by 2050, uh, and the, the, the environmental science is very clear on this, the rising sea levels that you referred to in, in your introductory remarks, uh, that is going to flood Shanghai. Most of Shanghai, including much of its downtown, will be underwater. Uh, Shanghai was dredged from swamp and sea starting in the 15th century, and to the waters it will return. Not only that, but starting around 2060, uh, and maybe a little bit earlier, China is going to start, particularly the North China Plain between Shanghai and Beijing, which is home to 400 million people today. That heavily populated region, that agricultural heartland of China, is going to be racked by devastating heat waves. And in the last decades of the century, the projections uh, are that China's North Plain will experience five periods of 35 degrees centigrade wet bulb temperature. Now, what does that mean? Okay, that's a temperature when the balance of heat and humidity is such that the human body can't sweat. So a healthy adult, seated, not moving at all, under 35 degree wet bulb temperature, will be dead in six hours. And so the, the North China Plain, China's agricultural heartland, will become one of the least habitable, if not the least habitable place on the planet by 2070. So, so when you do these projections, what you see is that roughly around about 2050, the world will not have a functioning international system. The U.S. global power will be long gone. China will be forced to retreat from its international obligations, such as they might be, to manage its own domestic crisis. And so the world is going to be faced with a need for a very new kind of global governance. Well, the global governance in terms of dealing with climate change, we just witnessed that in um, Glasgow, and they couldn't even agree on getting rid of coal-fired plants. You just mentioned how the Chinese are building them at a great rate, and China lobbied against the idea of phasing out coal, and the compromise was, in the language, was phasing down. So... Contrast that with what you're telling us, Alfred McCoy, and it's clear that we are not stepping up to the plate, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, you know, the, the, the Glasgow was a mix of, of good and bad news. For example, China and the United States, through the work of Ambassador John Kerry, uh, signed a joint agreement, made a joint announcement of their shared commitment to, uh, carb- to being carbon neutral, uh, to ending uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, very important accord. But then when you look at the fine print, that's where that phrase, phase down, first came in. China committed itself to phasing down coal, and they used this very tricky language. They said they would do this in their 15th five-year plan. Okay, well, That 15th five-year plan is set to start in 2025. So what China announced, and, and people did, the press missed this, Okay, what China announced is they won't even start curbing greenhouse gas emissions until 2025, basically five years from now. All right, and the clock is ticking. These are critical five years. All right? And then also at Glasgow, India said that they would be carbon neutral by 2070. Well, you know, uh, China, uh, just as China is digging its environmental grave by building these coal-fired plants, India is doing the same. Because that same research that said that the North China Plain was going to be racked by These heat waves also said that the second region of the world that's heavily populated that's going to have the same events, not quite as bad as China, but bad enough, is the North Gangetic Plain, which is in many ways the demographic heartland of of India. Uh, So both of these powers, which together, India and China, account for 37% of current greenhouse gas emissions, both of them are, are, are literally digging their own graves. Now, so what that indicates to me is the current voluntary system that we run by which we run the international order, which is very important and and has many successes. Okay, that it's just not sufficient to cope with this crisis. And so what I see is that as this climate crisis develops and worsens with each passing year, that that there is likely, or there, hopefully, one could even say, 
there will there will be a, a pressure for the nations of the world to concede three small areas of their national sovereignty to a more empowered UN or similar organizations. Uh, uh, the first one would be that, uh, let's say around 2050, if any nation is still uh, is still emitting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, they would be heavily sanctioned and and uh, and made to switch to carbon neutral energy. That the UN could regard this, the international co- community could regard this as being tantamount to invading another country, which under the current world order should entail sanctions. A second thing would be that. A successor to uh, the UN High Commissioner of Refugees, or a more empowered form of that office, would be charged with dealing with this this human tide. It's going to be something like one-seventh of humanity if that 1.2 billion figure of climate change refugees by 2050 is accurate. It could be that one-seventh of humanity will be in motion. And we, we have a choice between absolute global disorder. I mean, imagine it, you know, nations fighting over water, primordial struggles over land, you know, kind of chaos and violence spreading around the globe, uh, and nations closing their border, pushing back refugees with with gunfire and tear gas and worse, uh, boats full of refugees being shoved back into the sea to drown. I mean, it could get pretty grim. And so there would need to be, the, the voluntary resettlement of refugees would need to become mandatory that nations in the temperate zone would be required to take their fair share of humanity. A third and final thing, uh, and you mentioned Glasgow. At Glasgow, there was much discussion of uh, significant financial aid. The, the, the wealthy nations are supposed to provide it under the Paris Agreement, the poor developing nations with about $100 billion in, in uh, climate change aid. Well, they haven't done that yet. So these voluntary contributions would have to become almost mandatory. Uh, and every nation uh, which was wealthy would be paying a, a kind of a tax surcharge to to deal with climate change in the poor tropical regions. This would have uh, three effects. First, providing food so that people wouldn't starve. Second, uh, infrastructure to remediate climate change. And third, to stabilize these societies as much as possible to minimize the flows of refugees. So it's actually a a program in everybody's self-interest. Now, the sum of these three reforms um, would actually, although it would be a very limited slice of national sovereignty, would create a kind of empowered global governance that hopefully would have sufficient authority to at least cope with the crisis. Let's now take a brief station break, and we'll be back in a moment, continuing the conversation with Alfred McCoy. It's not the end of the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org, and we're continuing the conversation with Alfred McCoy, who holds the Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the author of Policing America's Empire, the United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State, and In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. His latest book just out is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change, and he also has an article at Tom Dispatch, Catastrophic Global Disorder Beckons Unless We Act Swiftly on Climate. Now, as you point out in your piece at Tom Dispatch, in terms of global hegemony, that the United States will probably be the hegemon continuing up until about 2030, and then Beijing will take over. And, but its hegemony will only last about 20 years uh, until 2050 because of uh, the ravages of climate change. But at the moment, the facts are pretty grim, and that is that contrasting China with the United States, here we have, we've lost 800,000 people to COVID. They've only lost a few thousand, as much as we know, um, their statistics. So there's a contrast there. But also, China has accumulated a vast hoard of cash, about $4 trillion, uh, in the same period that the United States has wasted about $8 trillion in pointless and fruitless wars in the Middle East. So we're our own worst enemy 
and we lost four years under Trump in terms of dealing with climate change. And now that the Republican Party is rigging the next elections in a shameless and brazen way, it's likely that Trump could come back. And he he is, is such a catastrophe and such a fool and an amateur that he will accelerate America's decline. So how much are we our own worst enemy in terms of the massive challenges that you're laying out in your new book, to govern the globe, world orders, and catastrophic change. In, in many ways, uh, Ian, the U.S. decline has been something of a, a bipartisan project in Washington, D.C. The first and most fundamentally important decision was back in 2001, when we decided to admit China to the World Trade Organization and make them a kind of full member of the international capitalist club. Now, up to this point, the, the people that had been engaged in kind of mutual trade agreements had been industrial powers. So in effect, we were swapping our Boeing jets for Germany's BMWs and Mercedes-Benzes, that sort of stuff. Okay? Now, China, with 20% of the world's population, joined the World Trade Organization, and they, uh, with incredible drive and discipline, they made themselves into the workshop of the world. We all know, as we, we shop, how much of our, uh, of our consumer durables come from China these days. And in 15 years, between 2002 and about 2016, China increased its its trade with the United States fivefold, and they accumulated that four trillion dollars in foreign exchange reserves, was which was absolutely unprecedented. And they reached that peak in about 2014. About the same time, President Xi Jinping announced something that he called the Belt and Road Initiative. And when he stood up in Kazakhstan in Central Asia and proclaimed this initiative. He spoke of building a unified market through infrastructure that would link uh, Europe with Asia, that would stretch all the way from the Atlantic Ocean across the 6,000-mile breadth of the Eurasian landmass all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And uh, since then, China has proceeded with giving out hundreds of billions of dollars in, in aid and development projects that have laid down a uh, a trans-Eurasian grid of road, rails, and pipelines. Simultaneously, China has built a a ring of 40 ports, ringing the tricontinental world island of Asia, uh, Africa, and Europe. Uh, They they arc from Piraeus all the way to to Hamburg in Europe. And the combination of the string of ports and uh, the, the transcontinental grid is is uh, unleashing new kinds of trade and commerce, which is flowing to Beijing. And if that continues, as if by natural law, Beijing will emerge as not only the world's preeminent power, but the center of the global economy. And indeed, the international accounting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers has predicted, and this is a pretty modest prediction, that by 2030, China's economy will be 50% larger than America's. And since China and the United States spend about 2 and 3% on average over the long over the long period of their gross domestic product on on defense, when China's economy is 50% bigger than America's, its defense budget will be correspondingly bigger. China is already a near peer in, in with the United States in military power. In fact, in some critical areas like security of satellite communications and um, anti-missile defenses, China is already ahead of the United States. And as as they continue to apply artificial intelligence to their military to invest heavily in military technologies, by the end of this decade, China will be a, a, not just a near-peer competitor, but a peer competitor with critical advantage in a number of really significant military areas, particularly, particularly if there's any conflict, as it's likely to be, if there will be a conflict, uh, close to China's coast. Uh, the sheer distance, the width of the Pacific, gives the United States an enormous disadvantage, and, and China would defeat us in any kind of conflict fought anywhere off the coast of Asia. So all of this means that China's rising. Now, another aspect you mentioned, Ian, was while China was building this industrial complex, becoming literally the workshop of the world, uh, and investing these these foreign exchange profits in that in that in that effort, 
the United States took that $8 trillion and invested it in, in the Middle East, uh, invading Iraq and invading Afghanistan. And if there was an economic logic to it, we were going to turn the green zone in Baghdad into the epicenter of kind of an American imperium in the Middle East that would give us a, a secure hold over the oil of the Middle East. That was the only reason to be there economically. Well, in effect, we invested $8 trillion in securing the world's oil just at the time that oil was joining cordwood and coal in the dustbin of history. In other words, it was a gross strategic miscalculation. So the combination of these bungled decisions by Washington, admitting China to the World Trade Organization, you know, in, investing our military might in the Middle East, letting China grow unchecked, all of that you know, basically preordained America's global power to decline. And it was all imperial hubris. I mean, you you look back to the kinds of things that were said in the 1990s up to 2001. You know, that was when we were we were talking about um, the end of history, that the whole world would be transformed into into free market democracies following the U.S. model, that there would be that that the the, 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 the end, history would end because this was the destiny of humankind for all times. Okay. Uh, that was an extraordinary period of imperial hubris, and and our downfall was very quick indeed. And meanwhile, in the real world, the world uh, that we all share, lifeboat Earth, if you will, global carbon dioxide emissions rose by a staggering 50%. I'm reading from your article, uh, Al. Staggering 50% from 22 Point two gigatons in 1997 to a peak of 33.3 gigatons in 2019. So that's the reality we're dealing with. And we talked, started out talking about how a giant glacier in Antarctica could peel off into the ocean and cause sea level rise of two feet, which is just extraordinary. That could happen relatively soon. So when you talk about the need for the UN to come up with sort of a new global governance regime, it obviously is necessary to meet the horrendous challenges. But knowing how chaotic things are now uh, and how much national rivalry is dictating what's happening, I mean, the Chinese basically think that the United States is a fading power and that they know that they're a rising power. And the communist government basically feels that the United States is trying to sabotage China's rise. So there's a lot of bitterness there. And you know that China and Russia has just had a, the leaders met 37 times. They just had a virtual meeting last Wednesday. So my sense is that what you're talking about in terms of new global governance structures of dealing with refugees and climate change is probably incredibly optimistic that the reality may be much grimmer. Well... Uh, Ian, you're, you're accurately speaking on two levels. One about kind of global governance, um, and the other about the, the hegemonic power of individual superpowers: China, the United States, Russia. Okay, uh, and, and the two operate kind of in tandem. At the end of World War II, the United States used its extraordinary global power, its 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 victorious military, and an economy that controlled half the world's industrial production. And it used that to build an international order, the United Nations, uh, grounded in the rule of law and in a spirit of cooperation. And at critical points in the history of the United Nations and in this global governance, U.S. US hegemonic power has been critical to sustaining this structure. So the question we're faced now is, can this international order of, of international cooperation, the U.N. and all the rest, can that survive the decline of American hegemony, of American imperial power. And as I said earlier, China is not only trying to supplant the United States as the global hegemon, but it's trying to construct an alternative international order that um, sets aside human rights, the rule of law, and all the rest. And so that's a critical uh, question we're facing. In terms, at the level of, of imperial power, uh, the, chain, the, the, the relations between Russia and China that you mentioned are actually, I think, very important. Um, these are the two great Eurasian powers, and 
Russia and China were briefly allied at the start of the Cold War under Stalin and Mao, with Stalin being dominant and Mao being kind of the aspirant communist leader. Then the Sino-Soviet split occurred. They became really hostile at the point of near, near war, uh, with China constructing massive civil defense, not against the U.S., but against, against the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, now, for really since the first time since the, the early years of the Cold War, China and Russia are, are closely allied. They're both members of uh, China's equivalent of NATO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, they have joint military maneuvers. And they're both allied at trying to, to break the U.S. dominance of Eurasia. Look, one thing I established in the book, and I deploy geopolitics in the book, the study of geopolitics, and what I discovered was... was, was that over the past 600 years, there have been a succession of global hegemons. Um, Portugal, Spain, <clears throat> Holland, Britain, the United States, and now China. And despite the, the, the long span of time and the incredible diversity of these nations, they all shared one thing in common in their bid for global power. They all dominated the Eurasian landmass. During the Cold War, the United States controlled the axial ends of Eurasia through the NATO alliance in the West and through four bilateral mutual defense pacts in the East with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia, all signed in the same year, 1951. And then the United States overlaid on top of that rings of steel, the sixth uh, fleet of the U.S. Navy in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic, the seventh fleet in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, and then, most recently, 60 drone bases stretching from Sicily all the way to Guam. Okay, So now Russia and China are cooperating in punching through these rings of steel that the United States laid down over Eurasia, which was the key to U.S. geopolitical power. And they're systematically breaking U.S. control. Moreover, Trump's battering of NATO during his four years in power convinced the Europeans that they couldn't really rely on NATO anymore, and they began moving uh, towards a kind of shared or common European defense organization that would be separate from NATO. China's economic spread is weakening our relations with those four key allies that I mentioned, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and, and Australia. Uh, and so it looks like China and Russia together are breaking the U.S. hold over Eurasia and it's important to realize that that Eurasia is the epicenter of world power. It, it contains 70% of the world's population and productivity. You know, and then you know there are some secondary areas like you know Latin America and North America. Okay, but but Eurasia is the epicenter of world power. So if China and Russia dominate Eurasia together, break U.S. control, they will become the world's great global hegemons for the at least for the foreseeable future. But the foreseeable future is not particularly a future we want. That's the no. overriding fact. So the challenge here is to get off this sort of bad habit of nationalism and discover the necessity of internationalism in the face of a common threat. Yeah, but I agree. But the kind, the, the, the sorts or the portions of sovereignty, the very slender slices of sovereignty that the nations of the world would need to give up in order to create a, 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 a global instrument, a global governance capable of managing, well, first of all, reducing climate change and managing the consequences, the very real economic, social, and human consequences, would be actually quite small. It just governs the emissions. In other words, we now have you know, a way of moving away from coal-fired electrical plants, you know, solar Wind and actually, okay, and this is not so popular, but nuclear in order to provide the constant generation to fill in for the blanks in the in the in the solar and wind power. Okay, so we have non-emitting sources of energy that we can readily develop very very quickly. All that takes is the investment of capital. It's an enormous market opportunity for small entrepreneurs doing solar panel installation, all the way to, to major financiers that would finance the transformation of electrical goods. We can can do this, okay? So that's not a big deal, all right? Second, 
the resettlement of refugees. We already have a UN High Commissioner of Refugees. We already have protocols and procedures for doing this. All we need to do is expand them and make them mandatory so that every nation around the world does it. So it doesn't become, uh, well, like what Belarus just did with Poland and Europe, you know, attracting Middle Eastern refugees, sending to the border, you know, creating a crisis on the Polish border in order to, to make a diplomatic ploy so that the the dubious president of Belarus could maintain his office and legitimacy. All right, so you know that, those kinds of cynical games that are being played with the refugees. Uh, if the nations of the world agreed that that they would they would participate as a common project in this resettlement of refugees, again that would end that. That would make that a rational process. And then finally, the transfer of aid. The, the nations of the world have already agreed in on, in the process. We've set a figure of $100 billion. It's just a question of, of extending that and maybe transferring it from voluntary to mandatory. These are very slender concessions of national sovereignty, and people would still have their constitutions, their national languages, flags, the whole bit. Right? So this doesn't take a great deal. And you know, when you think about you know, how far we've come with the UN, back in the late <clears throat> 19th century, when the first international conferences were set up talking about international agreements to end war as an instrument of, of national power, um, the idea of, of something as powerful as the UN seemed almost preposterous. And yet the, the UN actually does have some real power. I mean, it, it, it actually does use it. Um, take, for example, Cambodia. Now, at the end of Pol Pot's murderous regime, in which he killed about one-seventh of his population, uh, under the Khmer Rouge. Cambodia was writhing in agony. The nations of the world got together. They were tired of the great power politics that China and the U.S. were playing with Cambodia. And they created a international government called UNTAC, the UN Transitional Authority for Cambodia. They <laughs> used UN peacekeepers as the army. They came in. They took sovereign control over Cambodia. They ran its schools, they ran education projects, they rebuilt its economy, they rebuilt its army, uh, they set up its parliament, and then they, then they left. So the UN actually does have some real power. Right. Well, Al, we've run out of time, but I thank you so much for this conversation. It's grim, but it's real, and I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Pleasure being on. And again, I've been speaking with Alfred McCoy, who holds a Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of Policing America's Empire, the United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State, and In the Shadows of the American Century, the Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. And his latest book, Just Out, is To Govern the World, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And he has an article at Tom Dispatch, Catastrophic Global Disorder Beckons Unless We Act Swiftly on Climate. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past
One more life goes on. And- 